today the uh, elementary school students are in the main gathering with us. We have a special notes page that Angela created for the uh, elementary age kids or even younger. If you like a notes page that's more tailored towards kids, maybe you as an adult need a children's notes page today just to keep you focused. That's there. Lots of colors and stripes and figures and things like that. That's there. All right, good. I hope that um, I hope that today is challenging. I hope it's encouraging. I hope it kicks off, in one sense, a week that is uh, full of an awareness of, um, as Angela, I mean, as Melissa said, of the things for which we are to be grateful. Um, I hope that you can choose gratitude this week. Um, the, the elementary school kids, as I said, are with us today. It can be a challenge to worship as a family. I recognize that's definitely a challenge to teach to a multi-generational group. I could do better if it's one or the other, but it is a privilege to be in worship together, is it not? It is. It's a privilege, and it can be a challenge, but I promise you, even though it may be, take a little bit more energy to engage in the teaching with your kids with you over the next 25 minutes, I promise you there will come a day when you say, do you remember when we all came to church together and we sat together? And it will be um, a, a thing that you look back on despite the challenge of the next 25 minutes of your life. It will be th- something that you look back on with gratitude. Um, as, a, as a beautiful season in your life when everybody was together. Today's especially challenging topic um, for us to address as a fuller family, but I would say it's an especially important topic for us to talk about because what we're going to talk about is something parents talk about a lot and kids probably hear about a lot. We're talking about being good. We're talking about being good. Specifically, we're asking the question, how can I be good? Today, we're wrapping up a four-part series um, called um, That Explains It. We're talking about a biblical worldview, ways that Jesus teaches us to see the world and then live in the world. The series has been called That Explains It, Jesus' Answers to Four Life Questions. And as I've been careful to say each week, the inspiration for the series has been the work of a philosopher, a Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard. I've quoted from him several times over the month. Dallas argues that everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a worldview, a way of seeing the world. It is unavoidable. Everybody has a worldview. Individuals have worldviews. Families have worldviews. You you hear about these and you run up against different worldviews around Thanksgiving time with the other part of the family, right? This is the way our family does it, which is a way of saying this is the way we think it's right to do, right? Family, all, whole cultures have worldviews, ways that dominate the view of reality and then how we engage in reality with our life. It helps to recognize that everybody has a worldview, but beyond that, the challenge is to align our worldview with the truth. Okay, that's the challenge, to align the way we see the world and live in the world with reality, with the way things actually are. If, for instance, I see the world as revolving around me. It's all about me. Life is here to serve me. The world exists to serve me. My view of reality is that I am in the center of it. It's all about me. Well, sooner or later, reality is going to come into conflict with my view of the world. And that's an example of a worldview that is completely wrong, right? 
It doesn't matter how much I believe I'm the center of the universe or how much I want it to be true. If it's not true, and that's not true, that specific example, it's going to crash up against me uh, pretty soon, probably sooner than later, because that's the way life actually is. It's not about me. So that, that my, it doesn't matter how much I want it to be about me, um, that's going to crash up against my perspective really fast. So there's all kinds of philosophical conversations that we could have about the nature of reality, all kinds of great stuff we could talk about. What's most interesting to me, and I think it's most helpful to us, is recognizing Jesus's answers to these four major worldview or big life questions. I think we need to do a few things. We need to ask honest questions in order to recognize how it is that we are actually seeing the world. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to read scripture and look at the Bible and learn how Jesus sees the world. And then the invitation, especially to the person who professes to follow Jesus, is to repent away from the way we see the world and to repent into the way Jesus sees the world, especially when we come up against examples where those two things are not already in alignment. So I want to get to the fourth worldview question today, but here briefly are the last three. First, what is reality? Second, who is blessed or who has it made? And third, who is good? We spent a good amount of time looking at common cultural answers to these questions, and we've looked at Jesus' answers to these questions. So without reteaching the content, let me just quickly reiterate in case this is the first time um, for you here for a while, what Jesus' answers to these big questions are. To the reality question, Jesus responds, reality is God and God's kingdom. God and God's kingdom. That's what you can actually rely on. That's what actually is. To the who has it made question, Jesus says it's whoever is alive in the kingdom of God. Whoever has a dynamic, real life interactive relationship with God. If God is ultimately what's real, then whoever is alive in that reality has a relationship with God, they have it made. They are blessed. See Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. To the character question, the who is good question, Jesus says, whoever is pervaded with love is good. Um, in what is known as the Great Commandment, Jesus summarizes the ethic of the whole Bible with four words. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. That's what it comes down to. That is the definition, Christ's definition of who is good. This is what we focused on last Sunday. A good person is the person who is pervaded with love, filled with love, and giving love out. Here's the fourth and final question. How do I become good? It's the development question. How do I become good? This is the question. This is the question for world religions. All world religions are trying to address how the adherence to their worldview can actually become in line with what they value to be good. It's, the, it's not just religions either, either. It's the core philosophical question. Any kind of self-help book you pick up at Barnes & Noble is going to prescribe a worldview. Uh, they're going to identify what is the ideal or what is good, and then that book is going to end with here's how, you put, here's how you become this, here's how you develop into this. So different worldviews are going to set up different ideals, but they'll all ask, how do I live this? 
How do I experience this? How do I develop into this ideal? In other words, how do I become good? Now, remember this. This is super, super important for Christians. Remember that Christ defines goodness in terms of love. We have to remember that, especially as I preach about goodness. Remember that Christ defines goodness in terms of love, which makes the how do I become good question even more challenging as well as even more powerful. Since Jesus defines goodness in terms of loving God and loving others, the development question for Christians becomes, how do I become loving? How do I actually become a person that is filled with love and is loving in action? So we'll end in a few minutes with Jesus' answer to the how do I become good or how do I become loving question. But before we get to Jesus' answer to that question, let's ask two additional questions that are related to goodness. Here's the first. Why is it challenging to talk about goodness? Why is it challenging to talk about becoming good? Can you raise your hand if you're in elementary school and you're in here with us today? All you elementary school people? Okay, I see a few of you. Good. I'm going to talk to you for a second. Do you ever hear your parents say something like, be good at school? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. Somebody came up really fast. Anybody? Okay, put your hands down. Put your hands up if you've ever heard someone say, I, I just really need you to be good while we're out to dinner. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Brandon. Very nice. <clears throat> or how about just the straight up, you better be good. Does anybody ever say that to you? Okay. Here's the question. When your parents or somebody like that tells you, just really need you to be good, or you better be good, what do, they, what do they actually mean? What do they want you to do or not do? Hmm? Oh, I'm asking the kids, okay? <laughs> I'm asking the kids. What do they want you to do or not do? Behave. Ruth Ann, you're right. What else? What else? Did you say flush the toilet? That's awesome. Good. <laughs> what do they want you to do or not do in order to be good? Okay, just don't mess up. All right. Anything else? What's that? Oh. Be kind. Yes. Good. That's a good example. Anything else? Yes? Don't do what to people? Tease. Thank you. Don't tease people. That's a great example. Good. These are good examples. All right. It can be relatively easy, relatively easy in certain contexts, like an elementary school classroom, to talk about being good. It can be relatively challenging in other contexts to talk about being good. For instance, and this might sound surprising to you, it is actually challenging for Christians to talk about being good in church. It is. It's challenging for us to come together in this context and talk about being good. Why is that? I think it's because we focus so much on our doctrine of salvation. I think we have a hard time talking about being good because we talk so much about the how are we saved question, the doctrine of salvation. And in the process of focusing on the doctrine of salvation, which of course is 
massively important. I think we underemphasize the importance of goodness. There are some that even get a little bit nervous when they hear a preacher start talking about being good. Because as Christians, our doctrine of salvation, in other words, our understanding of how people are saved or what it means to be accepted by God or how to get to heaven, it's about grace. It's not about being good. Every world religion teaches that what makes a person acceptable to God, what gets a person uh, close to God, the way for a person to get to God is by doing certain things and not doing other things. About being, you got to be good according to whatever definition of goodness the world religion uh, ascribes. Every world religion teaches that, that is, except, with the one exception, of, of Christianity. For Christianity, it's not about being good. For Christianity, it's about grace. The central event of the Christian faith is the death of Jesus on the cross, followed a couple days later by the resurrection of Jesus overcoming sin and the grave. And the message of the cross is that Jesus does for humanity what humanity cannot do for itself, no matter how many good works we accomplish, no matter how many sacrifices we make, no matter how many sheep we slaughter at the temple, no matter how hard we try, salvation from a Christian perspective is a gift from God. Right? We don't earn salvation. We don't earn God's love. We don't earn God's acceptance by being good. This is the heartbeat of Jesus' constant conflict with the Jewish leaders in his day, whose perspective was so focused on keeping all the rules and, unfortunate little byproduct, rejecting anyone who didn't. Think of Jesus' story about the love of the Father in Luke 15, the prodigal son story. Kid takes his dad's money, his inheritance prematurely, goes and lives like a crazy person. Jesus' message is that the love of the Father for his children is not affected by either the rebellion of the younger son or the obedience of the older son. The father's love for the children is constant. It is freely given by virtue of one thing. They're his sons. They're his children. Therefore, he loves them. Nothing's going to change that. Salvation as a gift from God is also the heartbeat of Paul's message. He writes this to the Ephesians. Perhaps some of you are familiar with this. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. There we go. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Paul's strong emphasis is that we are saved from our sin and made acceptable in God's sight because of the good work that Jesus does for us, not because of anything that we ourselves have done. So because there's such a strong tendency, it's just the way I think humanity thinks, that if you do a lot of good things, God's going to like you, and if you do a lot of bad things, God's not going to like you, because we're just so saturated in this natural way of thinking. Christians have been really focused, especially in our tradition, in our country, and in the West, in the last few hundred years, we've been really focused on this message Grace, grace, it is not about being good, we say. And what we're talking about is our doctrine of salvation when we say that. 
We're talking about our doctrine of salvation. We want to say that salvation is about grace. It's not about being good. But in the process, we often overlook, I think. We often underemphasize the importance of being good. It can be challenging to talk seriously about becoming good within a Christian context because as soon as you do, there's always somebody who wants to point out, oh, wait, oh, wait, but it's by grace that we're saved, not by works. Remember that. So here's what's really happening in that tension. We are confusing salvation with restoration. That's what's happening. We're confusing our doctrine of salvation with our understanding and our doctrine of restoration. Put another way, we're confusing um, being rescued by God with living for God. We're confusing being born with growing up. Everyone here was given life. You had nothing to do with being conceived. You had nothing to do with being born. Thank your mom. Right? But then slow, like life was a gift. But then slowly and progressively over a long period of time through a series of actions and decisions, you grew up. We're in the process of growing up. Many of us have focused a lot on becoming a Christian, on the initial receiving of God's love, but most of us haven't focused very much at all on growing or maturing as Christians or actually becoming people who know how to love, who have actually developed the ability, the God-nurtured spiritual ability to love others. We just haven't focused as much on that. Very few of us, uh, compared to those of us who have focused on receiving the grace of God, have actually become love-saturated people, loving people. So that's a bit on why I think it's challenging to talk about goodness in the church, why it's challenging to talk about goodness in the church. Here's why it's important to talk about goodness. Here's the second question. Why is it important to become good? In light of that, why is it important to become good? Well, I think it comes down to this, because Jesus says it's very important. Because Jesus values goodness. Uh, Put another way, because Jesus values love in action. Here is one very clear example that is recorded in Matthew chapter 25. I encourage you to turn there. It will also be on the screen. Today is Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the Christian year. This is a reading that is often included on this day, which is a day of um, recognizing that Christ is in charge of it all. And part of his being the king means that there is a a judgment. There is a, a reckoning. There is a statement of absolute, honest reality. This is the way it is. This text is about that. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. What I'm talking about, and what this is a good example of, is how important it is to be good. Okay. This is a parable that Jesus teaches 
that is called the sheep and the goats. Verse 31, when the Son of Man, Jesus is talking, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. It refers to a prophecy in Daniel. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. He's talking about the second coming or the return of, of Christ, of himself. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. If you're in school and you got a, uh, like a big notes page, you can draw a picture of a sheep, and you can draw a picture of a goat. Only you need to know the difference. I don't know how you do that, but you, right, a sheep and a goat, and then you can write down some key words under each one of those. The shepherd separ- as the shepherd, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? Well, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, who's on his left? My goats. Unfortunate goats. Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is no low-key teaching here. This is some strong language from Jesus. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about how important it is to be good. More specifically, to love God and to love others in action. Did you see the connection between loving others and loving God? 
It's the big tension in in the parable. When did we see you, Christ the King, hungry? Jesus is talking about the importance of being good. How does he define good? Being filled with love for God and others. And the line between the two is often sometimes a bit foggy. He wants us to love in action, to do the work, to actually feed the hungry, to actually welcome the stranger. How important is this to Jesus? Well, what he says here is that whether we do this or not is the basis of our eternal judgment. Which is to say there's nothing more important than this. In other words, being good and doing good is not an optional bonus for the super spiritual Christians who are looking for extra credit. Now, this is a basic requirement. Becoming a person who actually loves others is crucial for the Christian. That we actually become loving people. It's critical. That's what it means to be a Christian. Do you remember the verse from Paul to the Ephesians that I just read a few minutes ago? It's not by works that you're saved. It's by grace that you're saved. Do you happen to know what the very next sentence he reads, here he writes is? I read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Here's Ephesians 2, 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, in context, this is what it says. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is saying that you're saved by grace through faith so that you will do good works. You're saved by grace in order to do good works, in order to love God and love people. So there is salvation, that's how we're saved, and then there is restoration, that's why we're saved. Okay? Salvation is how we're saved, the doctrine of how we're saved, and then there's restoration, which is why we're saved. They're not the same, but they're really closely related. They're not intended to be like separated with 300 pages of other theology in between them, which is the way they normally are taught. Why is it important to learn how to be good? Well, put quite simply, because Jesus teaches us to be good. More specifically, Jesus teaches us to love, to put love into action, that our love will move us to do good things which really do matter. They really do matter. They matter to God. They matter to the people who are receiving our good works. And they matter to us. They matter to the one doing or not doing the work. I frankly don't think about that as much as I probably should. Got a call yesterday, somebody from our community is in the hospital. I think I should go see that person. It matters to them. Secondly, I think I should go see that person because it, it matters to God. I also should be thinking I should go see that person because it matters to me. It 
matters. Am I going to love in action? It matters. When were you sick, Jesus, and I didn't visit you? Oh, well, see, the way it works is this. <laughs> Whatever you did for the least of one of my brothers and sisters, you, you, were, you were doing to me. And according to Matthew 25, this is core. Okay? This is core. This is not a bonus for the super Christians looking for extra credit. Right? Yeah. This is the basis on which you will be judged. Yeah. Okay, quick sidebar, just a quick sidebar. There are voices within the Christian community that argue that every single ethical command given in Scripture, whether it's the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, any of the teachings of Jesus, are given in order to make us realize our need for grace. For instance, according to this perspective, which I do not ascribe to, the reason, the lead reason God commands his people to do certain things is that we will recognize we can't do these things and then we'll know our need for grace and we'll cry out to God, we've broken your law, we need your grace. That essentially the reason for the law is to show us that we can't keep the law. I think that interpretation misses the point. I think that interpretation is profoundly wrong and I think it's dangerous for the development of the soul I think the reason God commands us to do certain things is because he wants us to do certain things. <laughs> One theologian that shaped our Christian tradition confronts the view that God gives us commands just to show us how desperately we need his grace by saying this. If God tells you to do something, he intends for you to do it and he will provide the strength and the power that you need to obey him. To command us, this is so good, this helped me so much, to command us to do something and fail to provide the power to do it is to mock human weakness. God does not mock human weakness. Instead, God enters into human weakness. He shows us how to obey the Father by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus does. He relies on the power of the Holy Spirit to obey the Father. And then he looks at those around him, and he looks at you and me, and he says, follow me. Okay. Follow me. Which brings us to the big final question, the big question for today. How do we become good? I think it's clear that Jesus' answer is, you follow me. You follow me. How do we become good? How do we become loving? How do we actually transform from a self-centered person to a God and others-centered person? We follow Jesus which means we place our confidence in Jesus, we trust Jesus, we believe what Jesus says is true, and then we become his disciples. We go to school on Jesus. We become his students. We apprentice ourselves to Jesus. We're the students. He's the master. Watch the master. Copy what he does. Listen to his teachings. Obey them one at a time. Just start with one 
and obey it. If you take seriously the teachings of Jesus, and by taking seriously, I don't mean that you revere them, I mean that you do them. If you take seriously the teachings of Jesus, if you do what he says, you will become like Jesus. You will become like Jesus. If my boys do what I do, and if my boys do what I teach them to do, they're going to become like me, for better or worse. And people will see my sons, and they will say, you remind me of your dad. That's what they'll do. That's what they'll say. We have so complicated this Christianity thing that many of us think and feel that we really don't understand it. We really don't know how it works. There's no way I could help somebody else become a Christian. And no, I'm sorry, I'm not qualified to mentor somebody as they grow in their faith. Too complicated. It's tragic. Because at a fundamental level, Jesus simply requires us to follow him. That's what it's... He simply requires us to follow him. Over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Gospels, this is Jesus' invitation. Follow me. Everybody he sees, except for a couple really remarkable exceptions, this is what he says. Follow me. Leave that. Leave them. Leave this plan and follow me. Did you know that even a child can be a Christian? Even a child can be a Christian. In fact, Jesus holds up children as the example of what it means to follow him. (laughs) Kids know how to play follow the leader. Following in and of itself is not a sophisticated skill. Jesus calls us to follow him into a very others-focused life, a very God-honoring life, a very sacrificial life. He calls us to love, and that is challenging, but that's why he showed us how. And that's why he empowers us with his very spirit, his presence, in order to obey him. Amen? So here's what we've said this morning. It's challenging to talk about being good, probably because so much of our focus in the church has been about how we are saved. Secondly, we've said it's really important to talk about being good, and it's really important to actually become good because this is why we were saved. I've been careful to say, remember, Jesus defines goodness in terms of love. Loving God, loving others, that's the great commandment. And then finally, how do we become good? We follow Jesus. We we actually, we actually follow Jesus. I don't just mean you're a fan of Jesus. I don't just mean you identify as a Christian. That won't do it. That won't do it. That won't change you. But if you follow Jesus... Day by day, step by step, decision by decision, you follow Jesus. You follow Christ the King. He is our Christ, the Messiah, the one who rescues us. That's what that means. The one who saves us. And he is our King. He is in charge. He's the Lord. We are to become like him. Little Christs, Christians. Let's pray together.
pray, Lord, for, uh, I pray, I pray for a healthy discontent with a view of our ethics, our morality, our lifestyle, our virtue that says, ah, it doesn't really matter that much because it's all by grace that you're saved. Help us to hold these two in tension. Help us to believe you have rescued us, no merit of our own. Help us also to become all that you've created us to be and to love the least of these in this world as though they are you. I pray that we would be the kinds of people this week as we meet with family and friends that somehow in your goodness others could say, man, you, you remind me of your father. You remind me of a good God that I heard about once. I haven't experienced him before a long time, but I long to be in a relationship again with a good, loving God. And you remind me, you remind me of your Father. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.